Mayhem in the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday as swarms of protesters supporting outgoing President Donald Trump stormed the building in an attempt to force Congress to undo Trump's election loss. Now from the debate over gun safety to a resurgent threat here in the United States. That's domestic homegrown terrorism. That attack, that siege was criminal behavior, plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. Last week, FBI Director Christopher Wray told lawmakers that, quote, the problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. As the focus on terrorism shifts away from foreign actors and moves closer to home, we asked, what are the roots of this homegrown violence? Is a U.S. brand of extremism being exported globally? Today, is the U.S. at a greater risk from extremists inside its borders than outside them? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly, and this week we're talking with Seamus Hughes. He's the deputy director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. We discuss homegrown extremism, the impact of technology on these movements, and the future of domestic counterterrorism. Moderated by Council CEO, Megan Torrey. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, there is so much to get to, so I really just want to get started. Seamus, so on January 6th of this year, the violent insurrection on the United States Capitol woke us up as a nation to the threat of domestic extremism and domestic terrorism. Can you kind of set the scene for us? Who, who were these individuals that attacked the Capitol? Are they outliers or are they representative of the larger threat we're facing as a nation and, you know, the larger threat of domestic extremism here in the U.S.? Okay. Um, first of all, let me say thank you to the World Affairs Council for having me. Uh, I spent my formative years after college in, in Connecticut and Stanford and Bridgeport. And so uh, let's turn to a, a more sober conversation, <laughs> which is domestic terrorism. So if you look at January 6th, um, think of it like a bug light. Uh, it attracted all forms of domestic extremists. And so this is a relatively timely conversation because just yesterday we put out a report looking at um, everyone who was arrested at a federal level for um, charges on January 6th. It's about 300 folks so far, and the investigation's ongoing. The FBI director has um, testified yesterday that they got 250,000 tips from the public. Um, but if you pull back the, the curtain of the folks who traveled, um, who got and broke into the Capitol, there's a spectrum, right? On one side of the spectrum, you have um, militias like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. These are more organized groups with command and control and, and hierarchy. They tended to be former military folks or have some sort of operational background. Then you had a pretty good cluster of folks who, uh, what we decided, that, what we called as um, clustered networks. These are folks that travel with their friends, families, um, husbands and wives um, to the group. And then finally, the largest category of the 300 folks who've been charged and arrested are what we term as inspired believers. These are folks that don't have an operational connection to groups, um, didn't have any friends, but were drawn to the movement. And so, like I said, it was a bug light. January 6th went out and everybody came in and it gave you a sense of what you're talking about on the spectrum of domestic terrorism from the very well-prepared to the kind of merely curious who take selfies in front of a George Washington bus at the Senate Rotunda, right? And there's a different range of support 
whether it be um, folks that brought in you know walkie talkies and hid their guns outside to others who you know smoked uh, weed on the Capitol grounds and got arrested for that. So when we're talking about the the the, the look at January six, um, it is very much a, a hodgepodge, basically a, an island of misfit toys. Um, concerning, right? Um, but it was a, a, a almost a unifying event, similar to like a Ruby Ridge or a Waco, right? It, it's going to live in in folklore uh, for some time. We sometimes hear that in the United States, extremism is a problem across the political and ideological spectrum. Um, can you describe the landscape for us? Is extremism a far left problem? Is it a far right problem? Is it both? Yeah, it's an equal opportunity problem. The FBI director yesterday testified for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, when he started uh, as the FBI director, they had 850 domestic terrorism investigations open at any given time. Yesterday, he testified they have 2,000 open investigations. So it, the numbers are rising steadily, um, but it, it comes from all different political spectrums. Um, obviously, the vast majority, in, when you look at the cases, are white supremacist and anti-government movements, but you do also see far, far left, anarchist movements, everything in between, single issue, uh, folks that are upset about COVID lockdowns to everything in between. So you got to think of domestic terrorism. It's a term of art in government. And I spent my a good amount of time in the intelligence community. When you say domestic terrorism, it doesn't just mean white supremacists. It doesn't just mean far right. It doesn't mean far left. It means everything. And so it's a catch-all phrase for, for a lot of, of, of this. And the way we approach domestic terrorism is much different um, in terms of laws and, and responsibilities and resources than we do, say, international terrorism. So cases of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. There's different laws in the books. There's different approaches uh, um, to it. And so it's in very way a, a kaleidoscope of extremism, a, a mosaic uh, you got to kind of put together. So, you know, in the in the post 9-11 world, we were the United States was so focused on fighting, um, fighting terrorism abroad. How do you think sort of the domestic terrorism landscape has changed since 9-11? Have we as Americans changed our perception on terrorism? Well, I think January 6th was a was an eye-opening event for a number of people. But if you'd been watching this for decades, you realize that, that all the lights were blinking red for quite a while. Um, it, and when you look at domestic terrorism in the U.S., um, there is a, a good number of folks who are organized, has a, a leadership structure, is training at 100 acres in a town in Georgia, shooting guns and hanging out with 10 of their friends. Whereas when you look at international terrorism, um, they tended to be folks, ones and twos of people, so not large numbers of individuals. So in many ways, there's an organizational structure for domestic terrorism that there wasn't for international terrorism supporters in the US. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. A, a good thing because it's easy if you're the FBI to put together your cork board with your yarn and figure out the organizational structure and then start taking folks, starting arresting the folks. It's a bad thing because they've relatively had a freedom of movement that you know groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda haven't had uh, in the US. So if we're looking across the spectrum, um, you know, across the United States at domestic terrorists, what are some of the most prominent sort of groups and where are they in the United States? Yeah, um, all over, uh, unfortunately. And I don't want to be alarmist, right? You got to put this in context. You're talking about 2,000 active investigations in a population size of 330 million. So a relatively um, uh, reasonable number of, of, of things. But you're you're talking about the traditional kind of you know, KKK, white supremacist, neo-Nazi uh, type of groups. 
um, but an increasing number of uh, what we would term as anti-government uh, movements. And so these are people that are, um, see government as an overreach, uh, as incringing on um, First Amendment or Second Amendment rights and are rallying around that. And then we can't discount the role of the internet uh, into this whole conversation. So we had a number of folks that showed up on January 6th that were drawn to this idea of QAnon, you know, an individual they believed uh, was telling them the prophecy of what was happening in the US and you know, they needed to, to help stop that. And so the role of social media to connect all these folks um, in a way they hadn't before, you know, it was a little bit harder in you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when you're a big fan of white supremacy to find other people that are fans of white supremacy in your town. Um, you can now make that, that leap online and then um, connect. So when we're looking at who is vulnerable you know, to recruitment, who is the most vulnerable to recruitment by domestic terrorism groups? Uh, I think there's a, there's a spectrum. I would say if I spent my career looking at, at both ISIS cases and domestic terrorism cases. For the ISIS cases, for international terrorism, they tend to be younger folks, um, you know, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, um, impressionable youth. When you look at domestic terrorism cases, they tend to be on the older spectrum. In fact, when you look at the cases of individuals who charged on January 6th, the average age is 39. Um, and for the women in the, in the data set, the average age is 45. So it almost seems like a second act uh, in many ways, right? Um, you're, these are folks that are, are prone to believe conspiracies. Uh, they are, these are folks that, um, that want to have a sense of belonging and these groups provide some level of it. I should, should note that you know, if anyone ever tells you, here's a profile of a domestic terrorist and here's the top 10 list uh, they need to check. And if you get that top 10 list, that person's gonna be a domestic terrorist, kick them out of the room immediately um, because there isn't one, right? You wish as a, as a law enforcement officer or a psychologist or things like that, that you had that checklist, but, but people by their very nature are complex, right? And the reason why they join domestic terrorist groups, domestic extremist groups is equally as complex. And so uh, I wish it was a, a, an easier process, but it's just not. Has COVID increased um, recruitment by domestic terrorism groups? Uh, yes and no. And that's a typical academic answer, but let me explain it, right? So yes, in terms of um, more people spending time online, they're getting down a rabbit hole of conspiracies, right? And yes, because um, COVID in many ways kind of reinforced a narrative that had already been out there for anti-government groups, which is government overreach, right? Um, they've enforced lockdowns. And so as such, government can't do that. They're infringing on our rights. We have to push back on that. In fact, when you saw the, the, the rallies against lockdowns around this country, there were obviously a number of people that had legitimate concerns about the role of lockdowns, but then you saw anti-government groups and, and members try to co-opt that movement and, and reinforce what they saw as the beliefs. Now, here's the no on that question. Uh, Megan, you and I are more likely joining a domestic extremism group if I know you in person, right? Um, so social media obviously matters and the online environment obviously matters. But like most things, you're more likely to commit a violent act if you think your best friend thinks that violent act is okay too, right? And so having that in-person recruitment uh, matters a great deal. And so there was a limiting, obviously, um, given the nature of the virus uh, of in-person um, networks and, and recruitment. So that did diminish in some ways, but I think it's offset by the, the role of social media. So when we're looking at, um, again, who's vulnerable to domestic extremism, we often 
or we have been hearing a lot about recruitment in law enforcement, recruitment within our military. In fact, I think that the Pentagon released a report last week about recruitment within the military and within our veterans. Um, can you speak to why extremist groups may be targeting law enforcement, military veterans? Yeah, a lot of this is because they provide some skill set that they don't have um, in their own group, right? So if you look at January 6, um, we had 36 veterans um, who were arrested for federal charges. Those primarily came from groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And so if you were part of an organization, a domestic extremism organization, you tended to have a military background. So why are they recruiting them? And it is an active recruitment, right? It's uh, flyers at bases and things like that. Um, it's because they have a skill set, right? If, if you believe that the U.S. government is going to take over and infringe on your rights, then it helps to have somebody who spent 10 years at special forces to know how to fight back to a tyrannical government. So um, there is an active recruitment on that. And then law enforcement, um, we've had a, a few cases out of the January 6th case, but obviously given the, the nature of um, how large law enforcement is here, um, we've got 26,000 law enforcement agencies around the country, you're going to have some subset of people that are that are drawn to it. So one of the tools that we have to combat um, extremism is, is policy and creating policy. Yep. But as we've seen, there are some policymakers and elected, elected officials in the U.S. who have sort of embraced and normalized extremist views and welcome, welcomed extremist views, you know, into their tent, some might say. How does this sort of hinder the effort to combat extremism? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's hard to say that, that something is extreme if uh, most of your political leaders believe it too. Um, and so there is something to be said about not normalizing um, the fringe. And if you bring it into the fringe, it stops becoming the fringe. Um, you know, a perfect example of that would be um, a group like Proud Boys or the Boogaloos, kind of a unique type of groups. Um, the more that politicians were talking about it, and increasingly the more the media was talking about it, the greater their ranks grew. So when they announced a, a rally in Seattle, it had four or five people, but there was a front page story in most major newspapers about the Proud Boys and damned if they didn't double their membership overnight because of it. And so there's a, there's a balancing act between informing the public about what you're concerned about and not um, rising these folks into a level they haven't before. Obviously, you would hope for elected officials to um, tamp down on the fringes um, and, and but barring that from happening, it kind of falls on civil society to do so. Is there any evidence that the people that were uh, at the Capitol on January 6th were um, pretending to be Trump supporters? The FBI yeah. director was, was explicit yesterday that they have no evidence of, um, of folks kind of pretending to be um, supporters of the former president. In fact, when you look at the criminal complaints, so on our website, which is extremism.gwu.edu, we put together a database of everyone who's been arrested. And that includes hundreds of pages of legal documents that the public can access. Um, if you go through those legal documents, you see a number of cases where individuals um, were pushing back on that narrative. So they would storm the Capitol or, or get in the Capitol and they would get pinged from their friends saying, that wasn't you, it was really um, the far left you know, pretending to be you. And then they would push back and say, no, actually, it was completely us. We wanted to stop the steal. It's important to, to, to do that. And so um, we haven't seen any evidence of that. This is not to discount, and I think it's important to say, um, this is not to discount what's happening in, in Portland or, or at the courthouses there or other things like that. There clearly is a, a good strand and an important concerning strand of far left extremism 
uh, in this country. But for the narrow question of, of January 6th, um, largely a, a far right uh, movement. We oftentimes hear that, you know, what happened at the Capitol on, on January 6th was terrible, but uh, but there were also protests around the United States um, during, you know, during 2020. Are those assaults of state and local um, federal facilities during the entire year of 2020 being being investigated um, with the same intensity as those were on January 6th? Yeah, I, I think I think that January 6th was clearly a, a a different standard of in terms of uh, law enforcement uh, approach, just given the nature that it's an attacking a co-equal branch of government. And so that there was a, a push of all law enforcement on there. This is not to say the FBI has ignored um, other threats. In fact, um, they talked about some 400 investigations they have ongoing uh, as it relates to um, anarchist and far left uh, movements. There's been about a thousand folks who've been charged and arrested um, uh, connected to the protest over the summer. Um, but a particular focus on um, you know attacks like that happened at the Portland uh, courthouse and Molotov cocktails and um, the murder by an anarchist of uh, a counter protester and so um, the FBI would say they're they're ideologically agnostic as long as it as long as it's violence we're going to to look at it. Um, Obviously, you're going to have to balance the two in terms of resources. You know, if, if you have ten agents, do you put nine against um, this form of extremism and one against that? And does that tell you something? Um, probably. Um, but I think there's a, an understanding that there is going to be a, have to a rebalancing. The the last point I would note, and I think it, we can't get lost in this, is I really like as an academic to bucket things, right? Um, so blue goes into the blue cup, and the red goes in the red cup, and then I know it, right? Unfortunately, domestic extremism doesn't allow for it that much, right? So you see folks that will have a blended ideology. They'll be uh, proud boys, but not white supremacists, or white supremacists and proud boys, or they'll be involuntary celibates, but also anti-government extremists, or not, right? And so you're seeing a blending of ideologies in a way you hadn't seen before. A lot of folks just like to watch the world burn, and we can't discount that. Um, but if you're trying to, to bucket everything as a, you know, we've had a thousand active investigations in anti-government extremism, you may miss the fact that, you know, half of them are also white supremacist or half of them are not white supremacist, right? Um, there's a level of nuance, which um, I know I'm naive to think that in 2021, but a, a level of nuance that is needed uh, on this. In an interview with the ADL, you stated that um, we're exporting our hate. Can you explain what you meant by that? Um, are domestic extremism, the extremists here in the United States spreading hate and extremism around the world? Yeah. And unfortunately, I think, you know, unlike, say, ISIS or Al-Qaeda, where um, a foreign ideology came here and was recruiting Americans, in this scenario, we're seeing a, a domestic extremism ideology that's exporting its, its beliefs out elsewhere. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, you're seeing travel from Americans to places like the Ukraine to join far-right um, uh, groups there, the Azra Battalion and other places like that. You're seeing transfer of money, um, transfer of, of uh, propaganda and ideology. Um, the networks and the infrastructure for the online space is largely based in the U.S. Uh, and so we're in many ways kind of pushing out our stuff. Uh, there's a reason why you see a Proud Boys chapter in Scotland, right, which started in the U.S. And so there is some, unfortunately, just the, the interconnectivity of the world um, will mean that we're, we're going to push out more. 
So you also wrote a book on um, American supporters of ISIS. So are Americans involved in jihadist activity abroad significantly comparable to homegrown extremists here? Uh, yes. And so uh, I, I'm old enough to think that we can chew gum and walk at the same time, right? You should be concerned about the Nadal Hassans of the world that committed the Fort Hood attack as much as you are uh, the Dylan Roofs of the world. And unfortunately, if you're the law enforcement the intelligence community, you can't just sleep on one side and not ignore the others. And so uh, obviously that the, the height of ISIS when they controlled large swaths of territory the size of the United Kingdom, they were recruiting at a larger clip than they are now. Um, but we still see, in fact, in Connecticut, we see still see a number of cases coming out of Connecticut of folks that are trying to travel to Syria and Iraq. Uh, and so it is it's unfortunately a busy time for law enforcement. When we're looking at the roots of recruitment into violent extremist groups, what would you say are some of the root causes? Uh, for the ideology or just, you know, the, the, the reason why people are recruited? Both. Um, okay, so... I mean, there's there's clearly a, a decades-long histories or uh, of of white supremacy that we need to address uh, and and has its roots in this. For the anti-government movement, has been around for, for quite a while. You know, think of Ruby Ridge and, and Waco, and so there's always been a strand of of um, contrarianism is too is the wrong word, but some sort of strand of contrarianism when it comes to anti-government movements, and then white supremacy. Um, has veered off into dairy different organizations, but has always uh, been present in some form, whether it be larger or smaller uh, in, in the US. And so um, that's gonna stick with us for, for some time and a, a level of um, soul searching is probably needed um, to, to address it. When we are looking at how we combat domestic extremism, one of those things that we've heard is that it is far more easier to prosecute prosecute a foreign terrorist than yeah. it is a domestic terrorist. What are some of the policy recommendations that you would have for us going forward? So th there's this question, right? So you have this domestic terrorism statute. So if you're in the, for international terrorism, if you drive to Bradley Airport and you're going to go join um, the Islamic State, you can be arrested for material support, the material being yourself, right? If you're a white supremacist and you're going to drive to Ukraine and join uh, a group over there, you can actually be arrested for material support because there's not a equivalent um, charge in the domestic scene. Now, we can address that, but um, given my past life as a as a campaign political operative guy, you know, I would tell you that the the prospects of that passing the House or the Senate is um, zero uh, on a good day, um, because there's always a concern that government, whether it be uh, whether you fall on the Trump, the Biden, or anywhere in between, that depending on the administration, a domestic terrorism law will be used against folks they disagree with. Right? So let's put that aside for a moment. It may be the way to go on things, but it's not going to happen. What are the things you could do kind of immediately? First and foremost, uh, we have to get more information on the number of arrests and, and active investigations for the FBI. So the FBI director says 2,000 active investigations, but I don't know what the hell that means, right? Does it mean 800 investigations for white supremacists and 400 for far left extremists, you know, 100 for anti-abortion extremists. And so we need some level of clarity because domestic terrorism is a catch-all phrase. The other thing we may want to look at is, you know, after 9-11, we set up a, a center called the National Counterterrorism Center. It looks and trades information as it relates to international terrorism and brings in 16 different agencies to, um, to look at all the information. It is narrowly focused on international terrorism we may want to expand its mandate to domestic terrorism. 
two other things to look at because I know we're hitting against time. Uh, one is, you know, we have, we talked about this, the role of military on domestic extremism. The FBI warned Department of Defense um, 60 times last year that they had an active investigation uh, on their individuals, right? And so clearly a problem, um, but we can expand the reporting requirements so that DOD knows that, you know, John that's getting on the base is under active investigation for being part of, you know, uh, a neo-Nazi group. Okay, well, you know, DOD may limit his, his ability to have a gun on base for that day, right? And so there's a level of information. The last thing I would note is, um, there's a lot of disinformation, misinformation, and just general um, misunderstanding of what happened on January 6th. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm generally dispassionate and I hate politics, right? So those two things together, I would like a dispassionate and hate politics type of approach to a national commission uh, as it relates to January 6th, right? Get through the noise, who knew what, what warnings were out there, what was the nature of what happened, and what do we do to address the systematic issues that seem to be failing? Because there was obviously warnings at the FBI and other places that things were happening and they just weren't heated. And so is that a failure of government or is this just the nature of what we're dealing with on extremism? So a commission wouldn't be bad. So right before we close, I want to ask you a question about technology and the role of technology companies. Yep. Um, so we know that technology companies have a large role to play. And uh, recently they've been sort of kicking extremists and extremist recruiters offline. Is this an effective response? What What is the next step? Where do those extremists go when they're deplatformed? Yeah, there's, there's two issues, right? One is deplatforming. So removing people off their platforms does work. If you look at, at a purely technical standpoint, if you have a thousand followers on, on Twitter and you get kicked off, if you go to another platform, you're not going to have a thousand anymore. You're probably going to have half, right? So from a narrow perspective, it does work. And you're less likely to get the, the fence sitters and the merely curious if they're off the mainstream sites. Here's my caveat to that. There should be a great debate uh, whether the role of, of technology companies to decide that, right? Who owns the public forum? Um, are these utilities? And so who gets to determine what is what is okay uh, on their platforms? And so uh, I am concerned, I would be concerned of um, technology companies taking an inherently governmental function of counterterrorism and, and, and policing their, their own stuff um, somewhere. So there's two options. The other thing is once they get off mainstream platforms from Facebook to Google to, to Microsoft to other places, they end up on fringe platforms. Those fringe platforms don't tend to respond to FBI subpoenas of information. They don't tend to do content moderation and remove content. They don't tend to um, be particularly uh, responsive to, to other concerns, right? So you may reduce the radicalization pool. So the number of people that are drawn to it and see that message, but the mobilization pool, the folks that are going to commit a violent act may be strengthened and get deeper because they're only talking to the folks they want to talk to, right? It's an echo chamber online. And so we as a society have to decide what's our level of acceptance of extremism on our, on our public forums. So one last question, as, you know, as a civil society organization, the World Affairs Council sort of, you know, really tries to encourage dialogue. Are there things that we as community leaders can do to sort of encourage moderation um, to help combat extremism besides conversations like this? How do we reach those that we're not reaching? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a few things, right? So 
you can do kind of the internet safety uh, approach um, to kind of alert your your children and, and grandchildren about the dangers online. Um, you know, particularly when it comes to QAnon, where it's very easy for someone to go down a rabbit hole and come out, you know, two weeks later, um, believing uh, the most uh, asinine things, right? So there's a role for informing the public on this. Um, we can't also discount, you know, I'm less likely to be to, to hate you, Megan, if I know you in real life, right? If I know who you are, who, you know, what you do, if you play, you know, softball on a Saturday, right? So there's something to be said about demystifying our neighbors, right? Uh, and getting a sense of that. So a level of interfaith um, connections is, is always, is warranted on these type of things. Um, internet safety, it is a tired and, and lazy um, saying, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, see something, say something is important in this scenario. If you look at the cases of January 6th, the vast, vast majority of folks who were arrested were turned in by bystanders. So people saw something that was concerning, didn't really know what to do with it, and kind of just let it lie. And so instead of letting it lie, um, reach out so that your loved one doesn't end up behind a jail cell for the next 10 years, right? So there are off-ramps that we can provide to folks, um, but we just have to be willing to do so. Excellent. Seamus, thank you so much for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation. I would really, I really do appreciate you, you having me, um, but um, we aim to be a resource at the, at the George Washington Program on Extremism. Thank you so much, Seamus. That was Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University, Seamus Hughes. You can follow him on Twitter at Seamus Hughes and check out his most recent book, Homegrown, ISIS in America. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For more content like this, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwalk.org. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.